Please open your Bibles to James 4, 11 through 12. The passage may be found in your pew Bibles on page 1013. I will be reading from the English Standard Version, which is a translation that Mr. Jeremy Fuller will be preaching from. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? May God bless to our understanding this reading from His Holy Word. Please keep your Bibles open to uh, James chapter 4. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the uh, way you speak to us through it, Father the way you empower your spirit to uh, change our hearts by your word. I pray, Father, that you would meet with us now through your spirit. May your word penetrate into the deep depths of our hearts. May we hear it, Father, and receive it and submit ourselves to your word with meekness, that word which is able to save our souls. Lord God, this is a heavy verse. I pray that you would help us to understand it rightly and to submit ourselves to your great rule. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So it is, uh, one cannot deny that here in America, we love vigilantes. We like Batman, we like John McClure, Daredevil, Punisher, you name it. We love vigilantes. We love seeing someone dish out immediate justice against the bad guy. We like seeing it done in such a way that we think the law can't handle. Maybe we think the law is too slow. Maybe we think it is too light. So we love seeing bad guys get pummeled by those outside the law. We feel a great sense of satisfaction at this, at seeing what we think a stronger, a greater, a more fitting justice happen. But is this a more fitting justice? I would say that it's not. And while no one runs around in capes, there is a sense in which we do have a form of vigilantism in our culture today. Consider the current era of social media justice, where someone is condemned in the court of popular opinion, and people treat them as if they are guilty without waiting for due process, just because people think they are guilty. And that is good enough for them. Oftentimes, this leads to other activities such as uh, graffiti or even death threats. There's a man in the news who got death threats because he legally killed a lion in Africa. This often leads to banning of businesses or even mob activity. But does anyone have the right to act out like this based off of their own opinion or an incomplete assessment of the situation? without finding out more information about the facts, 
without even considering the standard of laws and government under which they find themselves? Is it right to seek to destroy another person's opinion, a life over opinion or strong emotions? And the answer, of course, is no. No one has the right to do this. No one has the right to take justice into their own hands. No one has the right to vigilantism, to lynch mob mentalities. It is a mockery of true justice and due process. Yet, unfortunately, this is a very common thing that happens in our, in our, in our culture. And tragically, it is something that even happens in the church. And our weapon of choice is our tongues. So perhaps someone is wronged or think they are wronged by someone, or they have some sort of beef against them, and they act as judge, jury, and executioner. Perhaps uh, you see someone doing something that seems wrong or you're suspicious. Or maybe you perceived an insult or a slight in someone, and in response you start crying out against them to others instead of approaching them in order to find out what is really going on. But there's no such behavior in the church. There's no place for such behavior in the church any more than there is in the state. Each of us, each Christian, is not a law unto themselves. We are all servants under God's law and rule. And God himself has established in his church those who lead and shepherd his people. And he has established a due process for the handling of conflict, of offenses, and of sinful behavior. We see this in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 18, where Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And the text goes on to describe what happens if he doesn't listen to you. You don't go and start telling it to everyone in the congregation. You take the matter to the elders, and you let the elders handle this. Now, in his epistle, James has been teaching us how our faith in Christ should practically look like in our lives. And most recently, uh, before this text that we have today, we have had a warning against quarrelsomeness. Quarrelsomeness, which has resulted resulted from selfish ambition and not an attitude of humility and submission to God. You see, there were teachers who were competing with one another. They wanted to be the most prominent teacher in the church. So they were quarreling with one another. They were crying out against another, saying, don't go and hear from him. He doesn't know his theology. Or don't go and hear from him. He's, a, he, he's an Arminian, and you know how they think. And this is not the behavior of God's people. So he cries out against us now. He, he, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, <laughs> he calls them to repent of this quarrelsomeness. He calls them to wail for their sin, to lament for it, to humble themselves before God, knowing that it is God who exalts. We don't exalt ourselves. God exalts his people. And this call for humbling and submission and meekness before God is not something new to James' epistle. He begins with a discussion of this. If you look back at James 1.21, we find the commandment to receive with meekness the implanted word. That word... The word of God, the Bible, which is able to save your soul. Imagine that, being asked to submit to something that is able to save your soul. 
being asked to submit to the God who has saved you by his mercy and grace. The audacity of James, right? The reality is that this is a very reasonable call to humility, to humble ourselves to the one who loves us and has saved us. And now we see that in our text, part of this repentance and submission to call to, to God comes with the following imperative. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers, for the one who speaks evil against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Now the word here, uh, translated as to speak evil, is the word katalaleo. And literally it means to speak against. And it can also be understood as slander or defamation. And notice its connection in the text to the act of judging another to making a declaration of intent, motive, and guilt of another person. For me, this brings to mind Jesus' famous words in Matthew 7.1, where he says, Judge not, lest you be judged. So we have a cry here, a call from James to not speak evil against another, and in doing so, and acting in judgment on them. Well, what is it that is being commanded here? First, I want to discuss what this is not. What we do not have here is a blanket ban on correcting or rebuking another. Sometimes people use Jesus' words, judge not lest you be judged, as a deflection against those who would rightly correct them or challenge them on bad behavior. To use these words as a deflection against uh, rebuke, is it a misuse of scripture, neither is it a humble submission to God. Because the truth of the matter is, God calls us to listen when somebody rebukes us. Consider Proverbs 13.1. A wise son hears his father's instructions, but a scoffer does not listen to a rebuke. And along with this, we have a responsibility to correct those who are gone astray. In fact, scripture treats it as a matter of life and death. James will go on to say in the next chapter of his epistle, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So you see this commandment that James has given us is not a blanket command against uh, rebuking someone or even uh, correcting somebody. So what is it a command for? Because, um, sorry. You see, because we're called to rebuke someone, but we're called to do it in a spirit of gentleness and patience, and gentleness and humility, with a desire to see the person restored, not destroyed, and not as a superior passing sentence on his inferior, but as one servant to another who longs to see their brother restored and God honored. So you see the distinction here. This is not a cry out against, against any sort of judgment. But this is a cry out against judgment and calling out someone in a way where you desire to see vengeance. A desire, a desire to see them executed, as it were. A desire to see them broken down, not built up. And it's also, uh, James is calling them against such judgments that means that they have made, come to a conclusion that they have no right to come to. They have, jumped to a, uh, they have jumped to a conclusion about the person's motives, as if I had mentioned already. 
And perhaps an example is in order here to help explain this more. I take this example from Ken Sandy on his uh, article on the subject matter. One day, a small church was expecting a guest preacher. He arrived early and sat in his car writing additional thoughts in his notes. He periodically put a short white pencil in his mouth so he could free a hand to turn a verse to a verse in his Bible. And a deacon pulled in beside him, washed him for a moment, and then went inside. When the guest preacher walked into the church a few minutes later, he sensed antagonism from the entire group of deacons. He asked if he had done something wrong, and the head deacon replied, We find it very offensive that you would sit in our church parking lot smoking a cigarette, especially when you were about to preach God's word from the pulpit. So do you see what the deacon did here? Can you imagine the deacon's embarrassment when the preacher pulled out a small white pencil from his pocket and explained that he had been working on his sermon? So the deacon, he jumped to a conclusion. He had a brief moment of information, and he said, oh, that man is wrong in what he did. And he went, and he told the other deacons about it. He was crying out. He was speaking evil against his brother, and he was judging, standing in judgment over his brother. Now, what should he have done? Well, perhaps he should have investigated. Perhaps he could have walked up to the man's car, knocked in the window, and said, Hello, are you our guest preacher today? And that would have given him an opportunity to find out more information. In light of this man's faith in Christ, he should have recognized that his senses are infallible, or are not infallible, that he is capable of seeing things wrong. He is capable of misunderstanding situations. Most of all, he should have understand that he should have recognized that grace is more is very important. That grace should have prevailed in that situation. Who is he to judge this man? Who is he to not try and seek to show him grace and charity? In short, he should have proceeded humbly, not arrogantly, not having made a judgment and verdict in a moment with a moment's worth of information. So have you done this? Have you watched a situation for a brief period of time, yet come to an extensive conclusion that you knew everything that was going on? So you see, what we have in this imperative in our text is a warning. It's a warning against one who would stand as the ultimate judge over another, assigning them guilt and deserving of sentencing and punishment as if they were the supreme judge. And then, instead of going to them about it, they cry out to everyone. They, they publicly de- declare them guilty, maybe to their face, maybe to their back. Maybe even in the court of their own heart they do this. But they still act as judge wherever the courtroom is. Again, we do this when instead of bringing a concern to someone who has wronged us or who we think has wronged us, we start complaining to it about other people. We do this when we speak out after jumping to conclusions about a person's motives, oftentimes assuming the worst about them. Oh, they just love being the center of attention, don't they? We do this when we refuse or neglect to hear their own account of an event, 
or their own side of an argument. Or even when we neglect to gather more information that might give us a clearer understanding of the situation or person. Does any of this strike home with you? It certainly does for me. And sometimes uh, we tend to think about our sin only in the horizontal way, how we have wronged one another with these things, in terms of how it affects our lives or the lives of those around us. But James makes a very important point here. When we sin in this way, when we speak evil against a brother, when we act and cry out in judgment against them, we are not only sinning against our brother, but we are sinning against God, ultimately. Consider what James says in verse 11. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Now, what does this mean? Uh, when I was thinking about this, I, the idea of a food critic came to mind. So what does a food critic do? Well, they look at food, they taste it, they determine whether or not it was cooked right, whether or not it's up to their standards, and then if it is up to their standards, they, they eat it. If it's not, well, I like the words of the food critic Anton Ego in the movie Ratatouille. I don't like food, I love it. And if I don't love it, I don't swallow. But how often do we do that with God's law? The pers- you see, the person who is speaking evil here against their brother, who is judging their brother, is actually standing in judgment over God's law. What are they doing? They're saying that the law here is not fit for their consumption. They're saying, well, I have scrutinized these laws and I have found them to be wanting. They're not worth my consideration. They're certainly not worth my doing. I'll do what I think is best, thanks. Is this humbling oneself before God? Is this a declaration that the laws of the Lord are perfect? No. What it really is, is saying, I think I know just a bit better than you on this one, God. Perhaps you should sit this one out. And if this is how we are acting in regards to the law, standing as judge over it, as you stand as judge over others, what does this say about our, what does this mean for our relationship with the law? Well, first off, what is our relationship with the law supposed to be? Does God offer it up to us for our scrutiny? Does he say, here you go, take a look at this and let me know what you think. I really want to know what your opinion of this is. No, not in the least. God is not interested in my opinion or your opinion about the law. He doesn't stand with bated breath, hoping to get your approval. He gives the law and expects you to submit to it, not to give him your feedback. And as James says here, to stand in judgment over the law is to not be a doer of the law, but to be a judge. And as we have seen in James already, being a doer of the law is imperative for the Christian life. Consider what he says in James chapter 1, verses 22 to 26. 
He says that the one who considers the law and does not obey it is acting foolishly. And conversely, if someone is considering the law and stands as judge over it, as James has described them, is they're not doing it either. And if this person is not a doer of the law, well, then they're a fool. And what fool is fit for standing in judgment over anyone? So not being a, the one who stands in judgment this way is not being a doer of the law. And this is a real problem. Well, why is it a real problem? Again, because a very clear and necessary sign of genuine faith is obedience to God. This is what James says in chapter 2, that genuine faith produces the work of obedience in the heart and life of the person who has it. You see, as James says, a claim of faith without a life of fruit is a dead faith, a facade, a pretender. It is like a fake tree that doesn't bear any apples. There's no life in it. You see, the law is for Christian obedience. And this is because, as James has said already, the Christian life is one of submission and humility and meekness before God. And if we stand as judge over the law, we're not submitting to God's law. We're not submitting to him. And us as believers, you and I must recognize our place before God Almighty. And we must occupy it willingly and eagerly and gladly. As I said, this is not an unreasonable thing to do, to submit ourselves to him who is saving your soul, who has saved you, who has given you great promises. Yet the reality is, when we stand in judgment, we are in reality seeking to usurp God's rightful place. Did you hear that? We're seeking to usurp God's rightful place. And not only do you and I not have any right to do that, we would be a poor imitator of the one and only judge and lawgiver. Look at what James says in chat verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. He who is able to save and to destroy. Now this makes me think of a particular scene in J.R.R. Tolkien's work, The uh, Lord of the Rings. You see, Frodo and Gandalf are discussing the wretched creature Gollum. The creature who once had the one ring in his possession and was seeking it again. And Frodo expresses his hatred for the miserable creature. And what a shame it was that Bilbo hadn't killed him when he got the chance, since he so obviously deserves to die. And listen to Bilbo's, uh, Gandalf's response. Deserve it? I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be so eager to deal out death and judgment. For even the very wise cannot see all ends. You see, you and I, we cannot ultimately destroy. Nor can we save. Nor can we give life. Oh, maybe we can take someone's physical life, but we can't cast anyone into hell. Nor can we add a single day to our own lives. 
And can you see into the depths of the heart of anyone? No? Then why do you and I declare his or her motives as if we can? Do we know their past, their present, their future? Do we have a comprehensive knowledge of all the facts of a given situation? Then why do we dare declare a verdict against them without knowing the whole story? Why do we act as God acts? So if we do not have these things, if we do not have full knowledge of a person's life, nor do we have the right ability to save or to destroy, then why do we think we have the right to stand as judge or jury and executioner over the life of a brother, over the servant of another, And the truth of the matter is, it's very good that you and I are not the supreme judge. Because God is far more merciful, far more just, far more holy and righteous than you or I ever will be. And in light of this, let us consider the final question which our text asks of us today. And my translation here is somewhat from the Greek. Well, actually, not somewhat. It is from the Greek. It says, who are you, you who judge your neighbor? What right is it given to you to slander them, to tie the noose around their neck, to make a public spectacle for all to see as you slaughter their character before them? Are they your servant? Are you their God? Did you create them? Did you call them out of darkness into light? No? then why then do we do this? And I would like to offer this suggestion. To put it short, I think it is because to some degree, we still think that we would make a pretty good God. We think our standard is the key to everything that is wrong in the world. That we have a good handle on things that other people are having trouble with, and they really could benefit from listening to us. We see this in the garden. Adam and the Eve, when they rejected God's command to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, when they accepted the lies of the serpent that they would not die, that God was wrong, and they loved the idea of possibly being gods for themselves. And we continue to set aside God's rule for our own agendas, our own ideas, our own thinking, our own law. And when we, are do th- when we do this, we at least in part are seeking to usurp God's rightful place in our lives and in the lives of others. Yet there's one more thing that this says about us when we do this. Consider these words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. He who forgives little loves little. What Jesus meant by these words is the one who recognizes, who does not understand truly their state before God and the sin, the depths of their sin that he has forgiven is less inclined to love others. They're less inclined to be motivated by God's grace to them and show grace to others. So when we act this way, when we're standing in judgment, 
when we're speaking out evil against another, we may, this may also be an indicator that perhaps we don't appreciate the grace of God poured out on us poor, wretched sinners as much as we may think. Perhaps we don't really understand just how sinful we are and how much God has forgiven us. So do you recognize yourself, a poor, wretched sinner, who has been completely saved by God's poured-out grace? That you have been covered in the blood of Christ? Do you recognize that the only one who has right to cast judgment against you has not done so, but has worked to free you from the guilt of your sin and slavery? That now Christ, because of what he has accomplished, you are a child of God? declared just in his sight and beloved by him? Then why, oh why, brethren, do we, do we stand and speak evil against one another? Do we do this kind of judgment? So what is the opposite? What are we called to do instead? Well, our example, of course, is Christ. He who had every right to judge us for our sin, every right to cast us into the fires of hell. And what did he do? He came to seek and to save the lost. So if Christ, who is pure and perfect, has the right to cast the first stone, but he refused to do so, then why are you and I so willing to cast stones with dirty and stained hands? Christ worked to reconcile his people to God. And he has given us the, the ministry of reconciliation, not of condemnation. Even when we must do the difficult work of rebuking and disciplining, we are called to do so with a desire to see someone restored, and with reverence and awe before God, with much trembling, and even in repentance of our own sin. You see, the gospel must humble us, and compel us towards Christ-like behavior. We must submit ourselves to God, recognizing that we are his servants, and he is the ruler, that we are not the supreme judge, but he is. And then, in submission to the only rightful judge, we defer such actions and thoughts and decisions to him. You see, when we love others the way we are called to, When they do do something wrong, or we think they do, we will seek restoration. We will seek our brother's growth. We will seek the unity of the church and the glory of God. Not appeasements for our own rankled feelings or pride. When we truly grasp this fact, we will never dare to raise a malicious finger against anyone else for whom Christ has died. We need to commit ourselves, brothers, you see, we need to commit ourselves to being those who build up his church, not those who tear it down. That's the devil's job. He is the one who tears down the church. He is the one who stands in judgment of God's people. Who, not a judgment, sorry. He is the one who accuses God's people. In Zechariah, we have this image of the devil standing before God's presence with the high priest Joshua, accusing him. And what does... What does the Lord say to the devil in this scene? He says, The Lord accuse you, Satan. The Lord accuse you. Has this not a burning branch that has been plucked out of the fire? 
So how dare you, Satan, accuse this person who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ? So again, what should we be doing instead of this? How do we repent of this activity? Well, the first thing that we need is to seek the grace of God for real heart change. That is what needs to happen. Our heart needs to be affected more and more by the gospel. We need to pray that God would truly help us to grasp the weight of what it means to be saved by grace through the work of God's gift of faith. And then trusting that God will do this work, he will provide what we have asked for, we need to act. Maybe we need to repent. Maybe we need to find reconciliation with another person that we've wronged. But certainly, the next time we find ourselves in a situation where we are alarmed at the words or behavior of another, or someone has wronged us, or we have some kind of criticism of them, maybe we should be slow to act. Maybe we should be quick to listen and slow to speak, as James says. Maybe we need to consider whether we know the situation as well as we think we do. We need to, and we certainly must, we must be charitable and think that maybe we saw things wrong. Maybe we then need to approach the person, talk to them one-on-one, and not in an accusing, finger-pointing way, but say, brother, I'm concerned and I'd like to talk to you about something. Again, with a desire to restore, with a desire for joy and the peace of God's people and the glory of God. But we need to approach them first. If you feel like you can't approach them, but only feel comfortable talking about it to others, maybe you just shouldn't deal with it at all. Maybe you shouldn't talk about it at all. Maybe if you can't be bold enough to approach them about the issue themselves, you aren't fit to make a call on the matter. You might need to, as Jesus says, when we do this, we might need to spend some time pulling the plank out of our own eyes so that we can help someone else take the speck out of theirs. Again, this is according to Christ's teaching. And this all must be done for the sake of reconciliation and restoration, not vindication or condemnation. For you see, Christ was sent by his Father into the world not to condemn the world, but that through him that the world might be saved, so that those who believe in him would have eternal life. And this is a blessed, wonderful work of our good and gracious God. So what should our work be in response? So brethren, let us follow Christ. Let let us follow him and celebrate his love for us by showing the same love for one another. Let us speak kindly and graciously to one another and defer judgment to him who is the only good and wise and holy judge. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have guilty tongs before you. Our hands are stained with blood. Oftentimes it is the blood of a brother. Forgive us, Lord, for sinning against you in this way and standing in judgment over your law. 
And we pray, Father, for the work of your Spirit through your Word to work in us a fuller grasp of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ, the hope that we have in him, and the depths of your love and mercy to us. And let us show that love and mercy to others, Father. And let us uh, entrust ourselves to you, the great and wonderful judge, and only one who can save and, and who can kill. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.